Welcome to the Building the Elite Podcast, where we discuss the physical, mental, and emotional aspects of human performance within military special operations by looking at the principles that can help anyone thrive in chaotic and challenging environments. Dr. Douglas Casa has been the CEO of the Corey Stringer Institute since it was founded in 2010 and has been a professor of kinesiology at the University of Connecticut since 1999. The mission of the KSI is to provide research, education, advocacy, and consultation to maximize performance, optimize safety, and prevent sudden death of athletes, warfighters, and laborers. Doug is the editor of a book titled Preventing Sudden Death in Sport and Physical Activity, published by Jones and Bartlett with the American College of Sports Medicine. He has another recent book titled Sports and Physical Activity in the Heat, Maximizing Performance and Safety, published by Springer in 2018. His latest book, Elite Soccer Players, Maximizing Performance and Safety, was published by Rutledge in 2020. Dr. Casa has published over 375 peer-reviewed publications and book chapters, and presented more than 600 times on subjects relating to maximizing performance in the heat, exertional heat stroke, heat-related illnesses, preventing sudden death in sports, and hydration. As a licensed athletic trainer, Dr. Casa has successfully treated 378 cases of exertional heat stroke with zero fatalities. From 2018 through 2021, he served on the International Olympic Committee's Adverse Weather Impact Expert Group for the Olympic Games in Tokyo, which focused on the extreme heat experienced by the athletes there. Hey, Doug, thanks for being here. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah. Could you start by telling us about the origins of the Corey Stringer Institute, or KSI? As many of you probably know, Corey Stringer was an all-pro offensive lineman who played for the Minnesota Vikings. He had played five NFL seasons. Unfortunately, in uh, late July, um, on his first day of training camp in 2001, he suffered some heat illnesses and, and struggled on day one. They did a typical two-a-day practice on that first day with no modifications and extreme heat. On the morning of day two, he was back out at practice and struggled again and suffered an exertional heat stroke. And probably about 14, 15 hours later, he um, succumbed to the organ damage that happened and was caused from that heat stroke. So on August 1st, 2001, he passed away. For the next eight years, I assisted his widow and his three-year-old son and his agent in all the legal pursuits that took place. And then in 2009, Commissioner Goodell and um, Kelsey Stringer, the widow of Corey, reached out and their lawyers um, asking if we wanted to host a lasting legacy for Corey. And then we opened our doors April 23rd, 2010 with three people. And we now have 80 people who work at KSI 13 years later. Um, we have about 25 staff and about 55 volunteers and, you know, do a lot of work to focus on health and safety issues for athletes, warfighters, and laborers. And what brought you to KSI? So, yeah, so I was at University of Connecticut when all that, you know, took place. I started here in 1999 as a professor. He passed away in 2001. My whole journey started back in 1985 um, when I was running a 10K race on the track at the Empire State Games in upstate New York. It's kind of a, a summer Olympic-style sports festival that New York State would hold. And I had qualified out of the Long Island region in 10K, and that's a 25-lap race on the track. And it is as boring or more boring than that sounds. <laughs> and on the very final lap with 200 meters to go, I collapsed, got back up, ran the turn, collapsed again with 50 meters to go after running 24 and like seven eighth laps. 
Um, and that time, the second time I collapsed, I didn't get back up. I was in a coma and I'd suffered an exertional heat stroke on August 8th, 1985. I was very fortunate to have an athletic trainer right there who knew it was heat stroke and started cooling right away. And the emergency room physician at the hospital in Buffalo, Herculean efforts to cool me aggressively. And so from that day, about almost 38 years ago now, this is basically all I've been focused on is how we can have people who have to do intense exercise in the heat. How can we have them do it more safely? Um, and if a problem does arise, how can we treat them effectively? Let's talk about your heat lab. I assume it's still the same one I saw like two, three years ago, right? The one that gets yes. super hot. It's called the Mission Heat Lab at UConn's Corey Stringer Institute. And it's an amazing world-class facility where we do a lot of Department of Defense research right now. In fact, we have had 18 Department of Defense research projects in the last six years. We also do a lot of work for laborers and for athletes as well. And it's, yeah, it's an environmental chamber that can actually go from minus 20 degrees Fahrenheit to 120 degrees Fahrenheit from 20% to 90% humidity, um, zero mile per hour up to 20 mile per hour wind speed. And we can go from full shade up to full sun with radiant heat lamps. It's, it can really create all the kind of environments that we would need. And it's big enough. We can have two or three people going at a time. And some of our trials, people go, they're in there six, eight, 10, 12 hours a day, depending on what the research study is and what it entails. We also have a second heat lab downstairs as well. That's not as beautiful as that one, but that is also used um, most days. Um, in fact, in our busy time this past winter, we were um, our two heat labs were going at about 120 hours per week, about 70 hours for the upstairs one and about 50 hours for the one downstairs. Wow. In the heat lab, we're looking at you know body cooling strategies, hydration issues with athletes, heat acclimat um, or warfighters or laborers, heat acclimatization issues. We could be looking at supplements. We could be looking at different physiological responses to different factors of exercising in the heat. Um, so it's really a myriad of different factors that we can examine. Wow, that's really cool. Can you explain the science of heat stroke? What's happening in your body as core temp increases? Sure. So first of all, heat stroke, we need to kind of tear it down a little bit to the two different kinds of heat stroke. There's classic heat stroke and there's exertional heat stroke. Um, and the etiology is different for the two of them. So classic heat stroke is, um, you might hear when um, elderly people are in on-air conditioned apartment buildings and heat waves. So for instance, in 2003, 12,000 people in France, in Paris, died from heat stroke in the span of 10 days. And in New York City and Chicago in 1995, um, we lost between five and 800 people in those two cities from heat stroke in the span of just a few days. That's like elderly people with comorbidities who have on-air conditioned situations and they the heat's so oppressive that they can't um, deal with the hot conditions. And a lot of times those people have heart conditions or lung conditions or other medical problems already. Another very common form of classic heat stroke is when we hear about infants left in parked cars in the summertime. Oof. And that sad situation is another form of classic heat stroke. And I, I think the best way of explaining classic heat stroke is a failure of the thermoregulatory system. It literally just shuts down and cannot function because of how oppressive the situation is and um, some of the other medical conditions people might be facing. The difference with exertional heat stroke is I, I like to tell people it's an overwhelming of the thermoregulatory system. It's still functioning and usually quite well. It's just you're generating more heat at a faster rate than you can dissipate in a given period of time. So American football linemen and American football cross-country runners or road race runners or um, war fighters during basic training, laborers in like oil and gas industry or the train industry or, or 
construction or um, other situations where uh, farmers, people have to be out in extreme heat for extended periods of time and doing labor while they're in those hot situations. So that overwhelming of the thermoregulatory system, what happens if that, if it goes on for long enough, because your resting body temperature is, you know, ballpark around 99, normal exercise in the heat temperature is around 102 to 104 range. We call that exercise-induced hyperthermia. That's not a medical condition. That's just normally what happens when you exercise in the heat. And it's called compensable heat stress, meaning you get up to a temperature, say 103, and then you're losing heat at the same rate as you're gaining heat. So you'll hover somewhere around 103, and that's why it's called compensable. Something that's called uncompensable heat stress means you're slowly gaining heat at a faster rate than you're losing it. Now, obviously, that might be fine if you're running a 5K or a 10K because you might be 103.8 or 104.1, and then the event ends and you're fine. Um, or American football lineman might be 104.5 when practice ends, and that's he's also fine because heat stroke usually is um, over 105 degrees Fahrenheit. But you can be over 105. People can be 106, 107, 108 for a short period of time and not suffer a heat stroke um, if it's like 5 or 10 or 15 minutes, and then the activity ends and their body can quickly cool down. But what happens with exertional heat stroke with this overwhelming of the thermoregulatory system, someone might be at 107 or 108, and it happens you know, for maybe a little longer extended period of time, and we start to have problems. So we might see central nervous system dysfunction. You might see things like combativeness, confusion, delirium. If it's severe, it could be unconsciousness or coma. And then you might also, if you stay hot for a long period of time, you could have organ damage. So we often see things like kidney damage where people might eventually, if the damage persists for weeks or months after, they might have kidney dialysis or kidney transplants. You have liver damage. You could have cardiovascular problems. We could have cognitive issues. Um, We could have heat intolerance issues. We could have muscular issues. Um, And that's all the result of those cell membranes being too hot for too long so that they kind of denature because you're, we found from the research that your cells can basically handle about 30 minutes over 105 degrees without any lasting long-term damage. So when someone does suffer an exertional heat stroke, our goal with cooling and treatment is to get them under 104, we use that as a safety net, under 104 within 30 minutes of when the condition presents itself. And when that has been done, 100% of the time the person has survived the exertional heat stroke, and that's over 2,500 cases that we've tracked. So when you hear someone's died from an exertional heat stroke, unfortunately, you can make the assumption that they were not aggressively cooled and they were not did not have an effective cooling modality. Uh, Because if someone goes in cold water immersion soon after the presentation of a heat stroke, we can usually get them under 104 within 15 or 20 minutes. Wow. And so how do you know that someone is moving into EHS? Like, How do you recognize that somebody's in danger? A really great question. So a few things to consider. First of all, let's get a couple misnomers out of the way first. So some people think that heat illnesses are a continuum that you pass through on a journey to heat stroke. So for instance, you're going to have a heat cramp and then heat syncope and heat exhaustion, and then you have a heat stroke. Okay, that never almost never happens. You, your first presentation that there's a problem with heat stroke literally might be your collapse unconscious on a track. Okay, so you don't have necessarily other heat illnesses before. Now there is a continuum of severity, right? Heat stroke is worse than heat exhaustion. Heat exhaustion is worse than heat cramps, but you don't necessarily travel from one heat, heat illness through another one to get to heat stroke. So we got to get that out of the way. And that's a really important thing because some people think they're going to be able to identify heat stroke earlier with earlier heat illnesses. And that's just not the case. 
Another thing is about half the time, there are no prodromal signs or symptoms of heat stroke, meaning there are no early warning signs that someone's about to have a heat stroke. And the first indication there's a problem is a person is unconscious in front of you. Okay. Hmm. So we don't always have early warning signs. That's why we need to be ready with cooling and to be ready to take care of it when it presents itself. But when we do have early warning signs, things that are common would be things like nausea, dizziness, confusion, headaches, more fatigue than usual, slow to respond. So the the two key diagnostic criteria for heat stroke that's separated from other medical conditions are severe hyperthermia at the time of collapse. So that would be like over 105. But when you're first coming up to someone, you're not going to know that because you're not running around with a rectal thermometer. (laughs) Second would be um, central nervous system dysfunction. And that would be things like I mentioned earlier, confusion, combativeness, um, delirium, um, slow to respond, just general, just confusion. They're, they're just different than normal. So if you sense that, if you see that, if someone's been doing intense exercise in the heat and you ruled out a cardiac problem, and now you think, oh, this could be a heat stroke because they're having the CNS dysfunction, the central nervous system dysfunction, then you would get a body temperature. If you're a medical person, like an athletic trainer or a physician or a person in the military, they do have rectal thermometers and they would verify that it is a heat stroke because there are obviously other things that could cause you know, central nervous system dysfunction. Someone might hit their head, right? They might have a head injury. They might have something called hyponatremia. They might have a, a diabetic response at that point, but whatever the heck it is. The two key diagnostic criteria are CNS dysfunction and extreme hyperthermia, but some of the early warning signs might be those other things like headache and dizziness and nausea and, and more fatigue and just feeling out of sorts and something is just not well. Like it's not like the last 500 days they've exercised in the heat, something's off. What is the treatment? Like if you recognize, say you get a core core temp and you see that someone's in severe EHS, what's the best treatment? What do you do about it? Yeah. So the most important thing is cooling someone down as fast as humanly possible. So I say that first because you don't always necessarily have the optimal cooling modality ready at the at moment's notice, right? So the best cooling modality without question is cold water immersion. So we'll start there for a second because, you know, at basic training situations in military where a lot of people are training in the same area, like in American football, high school and college practices at finish lines of certain 10Ks, half marathon, marathon races in America, where you know a heat stroke might happen, like in those three scenarios I just shared, you would have cold water immersion tubs set up because you're going to be ready for something that's, you know, quite common when people are doing intense exercise in the heat. To do cold water immersion effectively, you want to have as much of the body in the in the tub as possible. You want to have as cold a water as possible, and you want to vigorously rotate the water when the person's in to keep introducing cold water around the boundary layer of the skin surface, because obviously that's the boundary layer water is going to heat up because the person's 108 or 109, 110 degrees. I had 112.8 degree body temperature last summer on one of the heat strokes I treated, okay? And the person recovered totally fine. We had him under 104 within 25 minutes. I've personally treated 378 heat strokes in my life without any deaths up to this moment in my career. So I mentioned cold water immersion first, because if you have a an organized situation where you're doing sport or work, you would probably have cold water immersion tubs set up. If you don't have cold water immersion tubs set up, or you're in a more remote setting, and you're going to be transporting them back to the cold water immersion tubs, there are other alternatives. And one of the most convenient ones is a cooler filled with ice, water, towels, or a tarp. And what you would do there is you try to take up as much of the clothes as possible for a guy down to their underwear, for a lady down to their, you know, shorts and a a sports bra, 
and you cover as much of the skin surface area with, with freezing cold water on the towels. So you want to have as much covered as possible. You will occasionally change out the towels with fresh cold water towels from the cooler. And now you can be either cooling them on site or you can put them on a, on a vehicle and get them to the definitive care. If you have cold water immersion tub, it might be 10 or 15 minutes away, but it might be worth driving them there, but cooling them while you're transporting them. You might be in some remote situations in cross-country races that that is the definitive care of the cold water rotating those cold water towels, and that's how you're treating them. That cooling is about as two-thirds as effective as cold water immersion. Cold water immersion, it's going to be in Celsius, but it's what the literature generally reports is about 0.25 degrees Celsius per minute. So you can get down to degrees Celsius about every four minutes. And the rotating cold wet towels is about 0.16, 0.17 degrees Celsius per minute. So that's why I said about two thirds is effective. But either way, if you start that within five minutes of collapse and someone's 108, um, which is about 42 degrees Celsius, if you start that within five minutes of collapse, you're going to have them down under the critical threshold probably within 20, 22 minutes. Hmm. You can get it going pretty quickly. So, so obviously cold water immersion better, but there are other modalities. You know, if you're a wrestler has a heat stroke in the middle of the winter because he's trying to make weight, the best modality might be going into a locker room and have freezing cold shower just going on the person for 15 or 20 minutes. And that might be your, your most convenient modality because you're not ready with an immersion tub and, and it's, you know, only a hundred yards away from where the person went down. With the cold, wet towel thing, what if you're limited there? Like say you only have one fairly small cold, wet towel. I've heard people say, if you were to say, put some like an ice pack on your head or in your armpits or something like that, that it can be counterproductive because then you're causing peripheral vasoconstriction and you're reducing the body's ability to thermoregulate. Is there any truth to that? No. So two parts to that thing. So ice packs on peripheral arteries just are not effective when it comes to cooling. The cooling rates are, are quite low. If it's the only thing you have, then I would use it, but it shouldn't be part of your policies and procedures, right? If you have thousands of people working out every day in basic training, you would obviously have a, mo- a protocol in place to give them optimal chance of the best survival rates, right? But if you're in a remote situation, you're an ambulance driver driving an hour to some worker in a remote setting and all they have is ice packs, I'd want them to use ice packs, right? But it's like a fourth of of the rotating cold, wet towels. But you still can improvise in those situations because like even even a water bottle, just you want to cover as much of the skin surface area as possible with cold water. That, that's how you cool somebody. So even a hose, like if there's a nearby house or there's a work facility, like water coming out of a hose would be good. Like I mentioned to you before, a shower, just five water bottles covering the person with cold water or even one towel that's filled with freezing cold water and trying to get the whole body, you know, at least wet with cold water. Anything is better than nothing. And so shade is helpful. Fans could be helpful, but nothing is as close to effective as cold water on as much of the skin surface area as possible. And as cold as possible, like should you have ice cubes floating in it? Yeah, I I know in some field settings, sometimes you can't have water that's 35 degrees and 55 degree water will still cool very, very, very fast. But the colder, the better, the more body exposed to the cold water, the better. And getting it started as quickly as possible, the better. Um, Aside from the uh, vasoconstriction idea, what are some other common misconceptions about treating EHS? And just so I want to be clear, when someone goes in cold water immersion, I'm not saying that they don't have vasoconstriction, but the overwhelming power of the cold water, it overwhelms anything that the body is doing in response. Like you're still cooling Mm. rapidly. But one of the misnomers that's out there, misconceptions is, for instance, shivering. We don't see shivering 
when someone is in the 110 down to 101 range and cooling, people don't shiver. You know, they shiver when you cool them too long. Or we have something called hypothermic overshoot. So you take them out at 102 or 103 from the tub, and then they actually might be 93, 4 degrees 15 minutes later. And that's because there seems to be some kind of dysregulation with your therm- your ability to thermoregulate for a short term after that heat stroke. So when we take out at 103, we want to dry them off as quickly as possible because even with that, they're still going to drop down to 100 you know, in the span of 10 minutes. So I've had some people drop down to the high 80s and low 90s within 15 or 20 minutes, and you have to be ready to rewarm people. And that's with taking them out at an appropriate time. So we don't see shivering until it's too late. If vasoconstriction does happen, it's not impeding the process because they're still cooling super fast. Another thing you've heard probably in the past is like there might be a cardiac shock issue, like you might have a heart attack if you go in cold water. And that's just not been the case when you have otherwise healthy people have a heat stroke. You know, when you have a 19-year-old at basic training, or you have a 19-year-old at college football practice, or you have a 19-year-old running a cross-country race, when those three people have heat stroke, they generally don't have other medical problems, right? They're, they're, they're in those situations because they're generally healthy. And so people who don't have other medical conditions tend to not have any cardiac problems when they go and freeze in cold water. Like I said, the bottom line is get someone's body temperature down as fast as humanly possible, and that'll assure survivability. But there's more than just surviving that we care about because a lot of people who have heat stroke who are not treated well, they survive it, but they have long-term or permanent complications. And long-term, we identify something less than two years. Permanent is after two years. We deal with people almost on a weekly basis here um, at Corey Stringer Institute that come in from around the world for testing who had heat strokes, who were not treated properly. These are soldiers, laborers, and athletes who now have you know long-term liver problems or thermoregulation problems or cognitive problems. And we're helping them and their medical providers decide if they can, one, possibly get back to their job or their sport, or if it's really bad, how do we get them back to activities of daily living? And then in some in severe situations, they have to move from like they might be living in the southern part of our country, and they might have to move to the northern part of the country because they just can't live in the heat anymore because they don't thermoregulate the same as they did before. We're cooling them fast, not just to have them live. We're trying to cool them fast so that they can live and go back to their life and their sport and their job and still provide for their family, and they don't have to have these permanent issues. What conditions create the greatest risk of heat stroke or EHS, like long events, short events? We have to go context first, so I'll give you a few different situations. So American football literally almost, or might actually be, depending on the the, the group that we're talking about, almost 100% of the heat strokes are linemen, okay? Hmm. So we have this team of 100 people, only a third of them are linemen, but all the heat strokes happen in that condition. So it's probably not, not that surprising because they tend to be larger individuals, probably tend to have higher percent body fat. They tend to have lower cardiovascular fitness. And there, there's errors in the training and the conditioning process of those practices that are causing the football linemen to have heat strokes because the coaches are asking the linemen to do the same distance repeat, for instance, in the same time. So like they're asking receivers and cornerbacks and safeties and running backs, they're asking the linemen to have the same time as those people. So obviously the linemen mm. are going to have to work harder because they're just bigger. You're 300 pounds versus 180 pounds. You have to carry more weight across distance. You don't have the same cardiovascular fitness. Everything's going to be much harder. You're going to be working at a higher percentage of VO2 max. You're just going to heat up faster because you're generating more heat for the same you know, unit volume of distance being covered. 
So we need to change how we do conditioning in American, American football. We need to train them differently. So obviously, does heat acclimatization matter? Yes. Does hydration matter? Yes. Does body cooling strategies matter? For sure. Do work to rest ratios matter and during extreme environmental conditions? Yes, they all matter. But in American football, if linemen are having all the heat strokes, we need to consider how we need to train them differently and ask different things of them during a practice session so we can protect them. And it also makes sense because linemen do different things during a football game than receivers and cornerbacks. They don't need to do the same things. They don't need to do the same conditioning. So that's one thing. So that's in the context of American football. In running is the opposite. In running, it usually happens in competitions and not in practices, where in football, it 99.9% of the time happens in conditioning or practices, and it doesn't happen in games. And the reason for that, it happens in running, it doesn't happen in practices, because if a runner is feeling hot, and something feels off, they just lower their pace or their intensity. Where in a football practice, they're often feeling the pressure from their peers um, and from the coach to meet a certain demand or a certain time on the clock. Where running, it happens during competitions because they're pushing themselves toward a particular goal, obviously, right? Whether it be a time or a distance or a place for their team. Um, and that's where we see heat strokes in that context. And in running situations, because you tend to have people who have super high cardiovascular fitness, super low percent body fat, those people tend to, it's like the situation they're in, right? I mean, we probably have to change the time of day that they're doing that race because if it's 100 degrees out and you're asking someone to run a 10K race all out, there's just basic physiology we just can't avoid. I mean, if they're, if they're going to try to run their personal best time in a 100 degree temperature, they're going to get really hot and a, and a tiny percentage of them are going to have a heat stroke in a situation like that. So maybe running the race at seven o'clock at night instead of noon and the temperature is 80 degrees out instead of 100, and there's not as much radiant heat load, and there might be some shade in the situations in which they're in, you know, obviously might be protective. In basic training situations, and this kind of goes for sport laborers and for basic training, but almost all the heat strokes happen in the first three days. That's because heat acclimatization is still kicking in, and their conditioning level is improving for a lot of people who maybe didn't do a lot of training before it starts. Um, so what can we do to protect them in that first week? So we've pushed in a lot of military situations now, like that first week, they'll just use it like as an acclimatization week and they'll slowly wrap up conditioning and they'll slowly wrap up their heat acclimatization to protect those people during that first week and then push them more in the second week. But now their conditioning level is better and their heat acclimatization is level is better so they can handle the training that typically people had done on day one, two, and three previously. So the four big protective things we can do, like, are certainly hydration, heat acclimatization, modifying work to rest ratios based on environmental conditions and cooling strategies. Those work in all contexts. But then within the specific environment, you know, different things, military, labor, athletics, you have to think of the scenarios and then there's specific advice you could give to protect those people. Does event duration matter? Like, is there is there a difference in risk for like running a 5K as hard as you can versus a marathon or like say rucking with a backpack? Yeah. So in running events, there's definitely a sweet spot for heat strokes and it's usually between 30 and 90 minutes. And the reason is, is really short races like a 5k, it's usually not long enough to have a heat stroke. Cause if you're an elite male runner running a 5k in 15 minutes, it's just not long enough to get your temperature from 99 to 108 degrees. Now, if you did a super hard warm up or a silly warm up in a really hot conditions and you're really hot when it started, you could have a heat stroke in a 5k. I'm not saying that's impossible. But somewhere in the 30 to 90 minute range seems to be a sweet spot where you can have high enough intensity, but it's long enough that you can drive your body temperature up. So the incidence rate is highest in that 30 to 90 minute range. So that could be 
running events, cycling events. It might be sprint and Olympic distance triathlons. But then it tends to go down in marathons. Now, it certainly still happens. But the incidence rate is lower. And the reason for that is you can't usually run at a high enough intensity for four hours to keep your body temperature at like 108 degrees, you know, like you would for a 12K or a 15K the last 40 minutes. So there, there's like a bit of a bell curve, right? Lower incidence on both sides. They still happen. But the highest incidence seems to be in that 30 to 90 minute window. Now, that that's for like running, cycling, triathlon kind of events. Now, in American football, they tend to happen at the end of a practice. And the reason being is you're already at 104 degrees from this exhausting three-hour practice, but now the coach is pissed and they want to do a conditioning session at the end of practice. Now the linemen are already 104, and now we start a 30-minute conditioning session, and now these linemen are in great danger because they're all 104 and the receivers are all 102, right? So now they're at risk. Generally speaking, really high intensity is kind of the shorter things, but you know, if you do something really hard after being out in the heat for a while, that obviously could be dangerous too. Are there any objective environmental factors that, that you see as like like a cutoff point for risk, like say 80 degrees Fahrenheit and some percentage humidity? So that's a really good question. We've done a lot of studies looking at that and it would really depend. It's a little bit depending, like for instance, like American football linemen, they have a lot of equipment on, right? So their tolerance is going to be different than a runner who's just in shorts and maybe not even a t-shirt. Versus basic training, they might just be in a lot of the, some of basic training might just be in t-shirt and shorts. And then some, you know, military training obviously would be in full gear and they might be carrying an 80 pound pack. So what you can handle environmentally is going to be based on what you're bringing to the table and what you're carrying, but also what's your fitness level, what's your acclimatization status, what's your hydration status. Do you have cooling modalities available to you while you're in those conditions? So, so it's not a simple answer, but I will tell you that humidity is the biggest driving factor that dictates your ability to handle the environmental conditions, because about 70% of the thermal load is the humidity. Um, so that's why almost all heat strokes in America, whether they be military, labor, or athletics, happen in the southeast portion of our country. Now, they happen everywhere in the country. I'm not saying they don't happen, but volume-wise, they happen in the southeast portion of the country. And that's because if you've lived in, like I've lived in Georgia and Florida, if you would know the oppressive humidity that happens. So not only is it 97 degrees, but it's also 70 or 80% humidity so that your sweat droplets are not evaporating anymore. And if your sweat's not evaporating, that means you're not really, you're not effectively cooling anymore during that activity. So the likelihood of heating up faster increases. I'm making air quotes here. Does performance clothing actually make a difference? Like say a a fast wicking Under Armour type shirt versus just a plain cotton t-shirt? That's a good question too. Yep. So someone did their homework with their questions here. It's good. So, <laughs> so there's a lot of factors that come into play here. First of all, in hot conditions, you would want to have loose fitting clothing, first of all. Okay. So you don't want to have compression kind of clothing on. And the reason loose fitting clothing is more air can get into all, a lot more skin surface area, right? And the key to cooling is going to be skin surface area because you want wind and air traveling over your skin so that it increases the likelihood of that sweat droplet evaporating. So that's one. Second, you want to have light colored clothing on um, because it's going to be much less absorbing the radiant heat load. So you'd much rather be in white or yellow or light blue versus in black or dark brown or something like that in terms of clothing. Third, what you just said in terms of the tech gear, yes, that can matter because if you have on stuff that like just say a pure cotton shirt and you're out for a half hour, that's going to be completely drenched wet. And if it's completely drenched wet, it's probably going to be sticking to your skin 
surface. And if it's sticking to your skin surface, what I just told you about, about air passing through is probably not going to be happening. And, and those high tech things, we've done studies to show that they're much lighter at the end of an activity because the sweat is not trapped inside of those fabrics, you know, whether they be a Nike or an Under Armour or, or Mission or whatever the company is that make these high tech fabrics. If they're not trapping the fluid, if it's not holding onto fluid, um, it's much more likely to be loose against your skin and we're going to have better skin interaction with the environment and with wind and with the air. Now, all of that is for naught if it's super humid out, because if it's super humid out, we could all be outside naked and that sweat droplet is not going to be evaporating. It's still going to just drip you off your body because there's not a water vapor pressure gradient to send that droplet into the, into the air. And that's why I said like in humid conditions, it can just be brutal. I think of like the stereotypical like Bedouin robes that they'd wear, where I think oh, the perfect, idea exactly, was that- Perfect example. So you, you obviously a couple of things come into play when you think of that. One is obviously they were loose fitting. Two, they were usually white or some really light color, right? So those are things that are, are super helpful. What can an athlete do to better acclimate to training and competing in extreme heat? So it's all about ramping up and getting ready for that situation. So if someone's about to start American football practice on August 1st, um, you're trying to use all of July, maybe portion of June to get yourself ready for those practices, meaning you're slowly ramping up the amount of exercise in hotter conditions. You're ramping up the intensity. You're ramping up the length of exercise. So like, for instance, a heat acclimatization session, we call it a, a heat acclimatization session in the bank. If your body temperature is over 102 for a, an hour in length. So that exercise session, that heat acclimatization session, you got to get up over 102 for 60 minutes duration and hold it over 102 for an hour to invoke the physiological changes that you want to see. And it takes about seven to 10 days of exercise in the heat in those situations to get those physiological changes. Now you get some changes within three or four days, and you'll still get some changes after three weeks, but you're probably getting 80 to 90% of the changes in that first seven to 10 days. So if, if you're starting August 1st, prepping all of July, obviously will put you in a fantastic situation to be fully ready on August 1st. Same if someone started about to start basic training in Fort Benning, or Fort Bragg in the summertime when it's going to be brutally hot out, they know when they're going to be going. So prepping for that month before, a couple months before they go. Now, the heat acclimatization sessions don't only help with heat act, it also increases your fitness level, right? So the best way of protecting yourself in the heat is not hydration, it's not heat acclimatization, it's not environmental monitoring environmental conditions, it's not body cooling. The best way to protect yourself in the heat is enhancing your cardiovascular fitness, Okay. So those other things matter a lot, but nothing will matter more than enhancing your cardiovascular fitness. So if you can only run a mile in nine minutes, if you can get your mile time down to seven minutes, you're going to be able to handle the heat a 10 times much, much better after that. Okay. So those things all matter, but work. we always have to tell people get fit first. So if someone's not been heat exposed and they want to get ready for the heat, I would tell them for a couple of weeks, going into a, a Planet Fitness or a Gold's Gym and do some do some working out on a treadmill or an elliptical or a bike in, in regular conditions first, because you get fit first and you're going to be able to handle more in the heat when you go out to the heat. So you said 102 for, for an hour plus. How someone with, without a million dollar heat lab, how do you know where your core temp is? Like, how do you ballpark that and know that you're at the right level of like heat stress? You could, I mean, it's going to sound silly, but we work with a lot of Olympic and elite athletes all the time who come here for preliminary testing, and then they do stuff on their own at home. You could buy a $20 thermometer at CVS 
right? So we have a lot of athletes who will set up little heat chambers in their house. Like they'll, they'll have like a walk-in closet somewhere that's a small room and they'll put a, a bike or a treadmill in that little space and they'll put space heaters in there. And they'll do like an hour, 60, 90 minutes in, in the heat and they'll check their temperature like after 30 minutes, 60 minutes to get an idea of what their body temperature is at. And then some people out, you know, they you know do workouts and, and that sometimes they get an idea of what their temperature is. Without that, you're going to have to just kind of safely push yourself in the heat and, you know, ballpark what you're at. There are some advancements in wearable technologies. We're not quite there yet. We, we have done a lot of DOD testing in our labs, and there are some good algorithms being developed, especially for continuous kind of stable intensity exercise that we get starting to get good at predicting people's body temperatures with an algorithm that usually imports three basic items, the intensity of the exercise session, your skin temperature, and the environmental conditions. So you can imagine in the next couple of years, wearables, if you have a wearable that can be a decent job at predicting, that might also be helpful. With the thermometer, which type do you recommend like for, for an athlete to get an accurate reading? Like, Are those those ones that you just point at your forehead, touch to your skin, are those useful at all? Oh, you have to ask that. It has to be a rectal thermometer or an ingestible okay. thermistor. And ingestible thermistors would not be necessarily not feasible for most of the people in the population. So a rectal thermometer, the other one's temporal artery, tympanic, axillary, oral, all those are completely useless when you're doing intense exercise in the heat. We've done a ton of studies to show they're completely invalid, never rely on them either for training purposes or for diagnostic reasons for heat stroke. Okay. With adaptation or acclimatization of the heat, what is happening physiologically? Like plasma volume changes, hematocrit, that kind of thing? There's a whole bunch of changes, but the first that you just mentioned, you do see after the first three or four days is we get a plasma volume expansion. I always tell people in a way, it's kind of like illegal blood doping. Like you have more blood in your body. Now think about this for a second. So I'm going to do like a basic physiology lesson here first. So when you exercise in cool conditions, so if you're running a marathon in the Chicago marathon, it's 48 degrees outside. The world records for the marathon are usually set in the high 40s, low 50s in terms of environmental conditions. And the reason for that is, is that the blood can be focused on your heart and your muscles during that activity, right? We generally shunt blood away from non-essential organs during intense exercise. So your stomach, your intestines, your rectum, your other parts of your body are not getting a lot of blood flow because we're focused on performance, muscle, and maintaining your blood pressure and your stroke volume. So cardiovascular function. But now if you have hot conditions, the denominator, right? Total amount of blood divided by two, muscle and heart in cool conditions. But now when we go in the heat, our denominator now becomes three, right? Because now we have skin who needs a massive amount of blood flow and we need muscle and we need your heart. And so now the denominator is now a, a very importantly went from three to two, but our numerator is going to gradually be decreasing during exercise because we're getting dehydrated, right? So our, our blood volume slowly goes down after a couple hours of activity. And that's really important. Um, so the heat acclimatization process of that plasma volume expansion gives us that numerator can stay higher for a longer period of time. Does that make sense? And that helps us maintain stroke volume during exercise in the heat. And we're less likely to have something called cardiovascular drift, which is a progressive decrease in your stroke volume over time when you're exercising in the heat. So that's, that's one of the big advantages of exercise in the heat is that plasma volume expansion that happens in the first few days. But other things that happen, you start sweating at a lower body temperature, which, you know, is obviously helpful because you're, you're not going to get as hot as fast. Your sweat electrolyte concentrations decrease. So your sweat sodium decreases 
after a week or two of exercising the heat. So we conserve and hold on to our sodium, which is super helpful, especially if we're not supplementing during activity or don't have access to sodium. Our sweat rate also increases, which assuming it's not super humid out, that's a really helpful thing to keeping us cooler. There are other changes as well, but generally in the three to kind of 10, 12 day window, we see these changes taking place that enhance our thermoregulatory function. Back to the athletes you mentioned, if someone's trying to train for heat adaptation at home, you said some of them are making like mini heat labs. How do you do that? What do you set up? Do you just put a space heater next to your, your yeah, bike yeah, or something? It's actually much easier than people think because uh, serious athletes often have home exercise equipment anyway. So they might have something that they put their, their bike on, a trainer, or they might just have an exercise bike in their house or they might have a treadmill. And if you get a small room, a lot of people have used their laundry rooms. They have used walk-in closets, which obviously create great, horrible smells for spouses' <laughs> clothing that they don't like. But you just need a few space heaters. And you just might take a little testing to figure out what the heat of the exercise machine generates, the heat you're going to generate in that small space, and then a couple space heaters. And usually, if you already own the exercise equipment, for like less than $100, you can have a 100-degree room in your house with a couple space heaters. What about like wearing a sweater or something like that? Like obviously don't, I assume, dress up in a garbage bag like people used to in wrestling days, but. Yeah. yeah. So if you live in cold conditions or cooler conditions, you can get heat acclimatized by putting on a few extra, a couple extra layers of clothing. I would just tell people to do that obviously super safely, you know, because they're they're often not going to have medical people around them or, you know, people monitoring them. Let's say you're getting ready for a big marathon in May somewhere and it's going to be hot there, but you live in cooler conditions. So in April, maybe start wearing a long sleeve compressor shirt and pants and tights during your runs. And then after you get used to that for a week, maybe throw a sweatshirt on on top of that with a hood um, and slowly get used to a little more clothing. Yes, you can create your own little micro environment and induce heat acclimatization. Also, saunas and whirlpools can be effective for heat acclimatization. So after, but they're only, the best time to use them is after your workout. So you're already hot, which kind of makes sense because I told you, right, you have to be over 102 for about an hour. So your body temperature is already up a little bit. And then you go into a sauna and heat tub for a while. And then that kind of helps kick in more of a heat acclimatization response. Obviously, again, you have to do that safely. I'm not telling people to do an hour hard and 100 degree temperature and then go jump in a sauna. I'm telling people who are either used to the heat, jump in a sauna after, or it might be 75 degrees outside. You did a really nice workout. You're a little hot jump in the sauna for 15 or 20 minutes after. And just check your temp, obviously. Of course, like. yeah. And just listen to your body. Listen to yourself. If you're feeling lightheaded, you're feeling fatigued, like something is off, just get out of the sauna or the hot tub. You know, Take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, Put cold towel on yourself. Have some cold fluids. But you can have cold fluids while you're in the sauna or the hot tub as well after you work out, which would be smart to hydrate yourself and have cold fluids, but still can be in that hot environment. When it comes to saunas, what kind of guidelines do you recommend there? Like a specific temperature, time progressions, anything like that? I don't really have a set guidelines. I would people can tolerate a lot of different things. Uh, I would the biggest thing is I tell people to ramp up the time slowly. Could be five minutes, to ten minutes, to fifteen minutes, twenty minutes, or whatever you can handle. And it's also what did you do beforehand? If you did a brutally hard, horrible workout for a couple hours and you're already super hot, I don't really want you going in for a long time, especially if there's no supervision around. We really never encouraged using these things all by yourself. I mean, if possible. Are infrared saunas nonsense? I wouldn't say they're nonsense because if it's if it's another microenvironment that's getting you hot, 
it's almost like the, your own little heat lab. Like, so you can exercise in those infrared saunas and you also can be hot already and then go in infrared saunas. I'm just not sure that the infrared portion of it is giving you like an extra advantage, right? Okay. We just want, we want hot rooms. And if we can tolerate, we want to exercise in hot rooms, but we don't want to just start there from nothing, right? We don't want unfit people who've never been in the heat to go into hot rooms <laughs> and exercise for 90 minutes. Right. We need to find everything needs to be gradual and we need to constantly be telling people to listen to their bodies, listen to themselves and always, always heed the early warning signs if you're not feeling well. What about hydration? How do you manage hydration, especially in long endurance activities alongside the risk of hyponatremia? Yeah, it's a good question. So for the 99% of the population, I would tell them to drink to thirst. If you drink to thirst, you're not going to overhydrate. And for 99% of the people, that might just mean that they're 2% dehydrated based on their body weight, because that's kind of where thirst shuts off somewhere between probably one and a half and 2%. So if you're 4% dehydrated, you drink to thirst and you're back down to 1.5, you know, we're probably doing pretty good. Now for the elite population who want to know their fluid losses and trying to get close to matching fluid losses, there's a lot of times that would matter. For instance, if you're a world-class soccer player playing in Champions League in a game in Rome, or you're playing in the World Cup in the freaking Middle East, like this past World Cup, <laughs> and at halftime, let's say, oh, I'm not really thirsty, so I'm not going to drink. It's halftime. But then you go back out and it's 100 degrees and you have a 45-minute half, but three minutes into the second half, you start to feel thirsty, but you have no access to fluids, right? Now you can't drink for 45 minutes. Because as you know, in soccer, people can't drink if you're you know, on the field. So an elite athlete, it's nice to know your hydration status and nice to know your sweat rate. So we have people come all the time to KSI, you know, cyclists, runners, soccer players, American football players who come and we test them for their sweat rates and their sweat electrolyte concentrations so that we can program their specific hydration, individualized hydration plan. All right. So if you, some people's sweat rate is two liters per hour. But we test a lot of American football players and elite endurance athletes. They could be four liters an hour. That's a massive difference. You don't want to head into a four-hour activity, um, be thinking your sweat rate's two liters per hour when it's maybe one liter per hour or it's four liters per hour. Because like you said before with hyponatremia, I don't want to overhydrate anyone. That's very dangerous if we overhydrate someone. So I don't want someone drinking two liters per hour and their sweat rate's only one liter an hour because then very quickly it could be dangerous. But if your sweat rate's one liter per hour, that's great information to know because now I got to figure out how to drink 250 milliliters every 15 minutes, which is totally tolerable. And you could do that. And if my activity is four hours long, you know, I don't mind having some mild dehydration at the end, but I don't want to get massively dehydrated during that four hour activity. And also your sweat rate changes based on the environmental conditions. When we test people, we might test them in 60 degree temperature, 80 degree temperature, and 100 degree temperature so we can tell them their sweat rate in all those three conditions so that they can have plans and an idea of what to do to strategize in those situations. That makes sense. I was wondering that because the weather changes, you know, like it's going to be kind of hard to... And another thing is you can train your body to drink more. So again, I don't ever want anyone over drinking, but if your sweat rate's 2.5 liters per hour and you can only handle one liter per hour in terms of your gastric emptying and your intestinal absorption and what your comfort is before you start to feel nauseous or, you know, vomiting. So if you can comfortably handle one liter per hour... But over the course of six weeks or two or three months, you train your body. Like, so you slowly drink, you drink that liter per hour during practice and hard exercise and hard conditioning sessions. Slowly, you might be able to drink 1.5 liters per hour during that conditioning session um, because your body slowly can tolerate more fluids. And that 1.5 liter per hour could be helpful if your sweat rate's 2.5 liters per hour 
and you're going for three hours because we're still going to have a three liter deficit at the end and we still might be three or 4% dehydrated, but instead of being 5% dehydrated, right? Because we trained our gut to drink a little bit more. Could you briefly explain what hyponatremia is and then cover recommendations for managing electrolyte balance? So hyponatremia happens when you dilute out the existing sodium in your body with excessive amount of water. Okay. So that can happen in a couple different ways. The most common ways is people drink too much. So let's just say you're in a marathon. It's four hours long. You're a female who has a half liter per hour sweat rate and you drink one liter per hour because a running magazine told you that you should drink one liter per hour. So you do that and you race for four hours. So you overdrank a half a liter per hour. So that means you're two liters overweight at the end of the race. That makes sense? So two liters is the same as two kilograms. Two kilograms is about five pounds. So that means for a person, for a high-level female athlete or a female athlete who weighs 100 pounds, that's 5% of their body weight over they are now. So that would be very dangerous. That could be a situation of hyponatremia because we're diluting out the existing sodium in the body with extra water. So how we avoid that is educate ourselves on what our fluid needs are. You could easily weigh yourself before and after an hour run. Let's just say you think your race is going to be in 70 degree temperature. You do a really hard hour run. You weigh yourself before and after in the nude. That gives you a really good idea. I'm not saying 100% of that is hydration. You know, 10% of that might be metabolic losses, but at least gives you an idea of like, wow, okay, I lost a liter during an hour. My sweat rate's in the ballpark of a liter per hour. You know, at least it gives you an idea. So people can find that stuff out. But hyponatremia can also happen during really long activities when you just don't ingest any sodium. Okay. So if you're in a 15 hour ultra race or a triathlon and you only drink water and you have no foods with sodium during it, you can just, you eventually just sweat out a ton of sodium and your sodium concentrations can decrease in your body. So 99% of the time, hyponatremia happens because we drink too much. There are isolated situations where we just don't take in sodium um, and we, our sodium levels just, you know, they just gradually decrease. How we overcome this is we got to figure out what our electrolyte needs are. So for the elite athlete, there are things like sweat patches um, and there's something called whole body washdown techniques where we test people and we figure out their exact sodium losses during a set amount of activity and set environmental conditions under set acclimatization status. Because remember, your sodium concentration in your sweat changes when you get heat acclimatized. But generally speaking, like it's a very individualized process. I mean, we have linemen, you know, it's partly based on your body size, but we have some American football linemen that'll lose three, four grams of sodium per hour. Okay. It's crazy. Like, so if you have a three hour practice, you can like lose 10 grams of sodium. Like, I mean, that's like, it was like literally like you and I hanging out at McDonald's eating French fries for an hour after <laughs> to overcome that. And then other people might only have a half a gram per hour during intense exercise need, or some people might only lose a gram an entire practice session. So part of it is, you know, getting a feel for what you need for yourself. I mean, and, and is it an issue? Like the American diet is just super high in sodium to start with. So most people are getting enough sodium unless you're purposely restricting for some reason. And then if you are doing really hard exercise in the heat, you know, certainly, you know, I mean, you probably have seen like things like Gator Lights or a Gatorade Endurance formula where they have a little extra sodium versus your typical sports drink. Um, and there's nothing wrong with doing that because if you're doing really hard exercise in the heat and you're going for a few hours, you're, you're dumping out a ton of sodium from your body and your sweat. And these things I just talked to you are not anywhere coming close to replacing it, but it is replacing more than 
water alone would be or a typical sports drink would be. I'm, I'm a big fan. I'll, be, I'll have to tell your audience that Gatorade is one of our corporate partners for Corey Stringer Institute. So they've taken everything you know, with a grain of salt, which is obviously fun <laughs> right now. So I am a fan of people using sports drinks when an activity is like longer than an hour or 90 minutes when it's intense and it's in the heat. Okay. If you're going for a few hours in the heat and maybe multiple times in the day, picture a laborer, a soldier during hard training, athletes during two-a-days. If you're, you're going to be out exercising a lot of hours in the heat, I'm a big fan of having sports drinks and I'm a fan for a lot of reasons. One, the sodium in the drink I think is helpful. And I think having a little bit of carbohydrates is helpful because you're just burning a ton of calories when you're exercising for five, six, seven, eight. People don't realize a lot of laborers in America, they're doing 10 or 12 hours a day, every day exercising in the heat. Okay. Yeah. Farmers, oil and gas workers, people fixing track lines. That a normal shift is 10 or 12 hours. It's 90 to 100 degrees out all day, and they're exercising all day. So think about that fluid turnover for those people. Yeah. I was going to ask you about a scenario. Like, say I've got a guy training for a soft selection course, like SAS or Delta Selection in the US, where they're, they're going to be walking around with a really heavy backpack for up to 24 hours. And during the day, it's in the heat. What do you recommend that they do as far as their hydration and nutrition during that time? So first of all, I would, if it's possible, and I don't know the scenario this is all happening in, if they could prepare for that stress beforehand, that that's the first big step. So like, I'm being respectful. They may be coming from another job. They might not have weeks to prepare for this unique new stress. But if they do have the time to prepare for this stress is if they have a huge pack they're going to be wearing, there's particular clothing they're going to have to wear. I would want them preparing with those particular items because your sweat rate is going to be dramatically different when you're carrying an 80 pound pack versus nothing right? Because the right. work is much harder. Your sweat rate is dependent on three huge items. One is the intensity of the activity. Second is the environmental conditions. And third is your body size. Okay. So bigger people sweat much more, hotter conditions, obviously you sweat more and the higher the intensity you sweat more. So carrying that pack changes the intensity for any person. If you have a hundred pound pack and I have a hundred pound pack and we both go on a, a 10 mile hike right now, it's obviously going to be harder with the pack versus not. It's just fact of life. Okay. So we're going to, if we want to keep the same pace, we're going to work much harder. And if we're going to stay at the same pace, we're obviously going to finish much slower. So one of those two things is going to happen. But if we want to stay at a big pace, our sweat rate is going to be high. So let's train for that. Um, let's get used to that um, activity. And when sweat rate goes up, obviously we're going to be losing more sodium. So our sweat electrolyte needs are going to be increasing. So I would just tell the big thing is, is getting yourself ready for that stress. Um, and also, I know it's going to sound weird, but I think your stomach and your intestines deal differently with the stress of just not just heat, but carrying a huge pack. You know, it's just a different burden on your body. There's a different stress. And getting your body used to drinking fluids, ingesting calories at a rate that you need, especially what you just mentioned. If something's going for 12 hours or 18 hours or 24 hours, we got to be really good at ingesting cliff bars. I'm having fluid, hopefully that has calories and has electrolytes in it and having extra sodium, whether they be in packets or in things that we can add to our food or our fluids, you know, during that time, because that's a really unique stress. I was going to ask you about the like packets, like oral rehydration salts and things like that. Aside from the Gatorade stuff you mentioned, is there anything else that you recommend? I, I can't even go into it. There are a ton of brands, you know, out there, we could get to 10 brands in 10 seconds, go to any exhibit booth at any <laughs> triathlon and you'll know what I'm talking about. And a lot of them are great products, but it's more like just dialing in what makes sense for you. Um, most of those things you're adding it to your water. And a lot of them, they, like sometimes they'll be in 
something you're eating, which is also a great way to get that as well, because also it sometimes makes those food items more palatable as well. Because as you know, if you go really high sodium in your oral concentration, unless it's heavily flavored, it becomes tougher to drink sometimes. Yeah, And we don't want our fluid to be tough to drink because obviously that might compromise the volume we're drinking and that could compromise our hydration status. Okay. So the general takeaway, most of those products are useful. Oh, huge fan. Yeah. I mean, I'm a huge fan in those unique circumstances like we're talking about. If we're going out on a 45 minute run in the summertime, I don't think we need sports drinks and we don't need electrolytes, right? Because the American diet is taking care of us and what we have before and after is going to take care of us. I'm not saying not to bring water out with you. Um, but when we start pushing, you know, 90 minutes, two hours, three hours, our laborers or warfighters are going much longer. We need to have the water with us. We need to try to keep it cold and we need to figure out how to have nutrition and, and electrolytes with us. A final physiology question. Are you more likely to get heat stroke if you've already had it? Uh, that's a great question. So that's only going to require a two hour answer. So, <laughs> so I'm happy we still have the time. <laughs> if you have a heat stroke and it was treated perfectly, with a couple caveats, I'm going to say in a second, I don't think you're more at risk for having an exertional heat stroke. So I'll give you an example. If you're an American football player situation, we already said you have American football linemen, end of a practice session, they're 104 degrees, and a coach does a ridiculous 45-minute conditioning session, and there doesn't allow breaks during the 45 minutes, doesn't allow cooling, doesn't allow hydration, and requires the linemen to meet the same times as the receiver that person is having a heat stroke because of a horrible circumstances and structure of the practice, not because they brought something to the table genetically or something themselves that caused them to have a heat stroke. So with that said, someone could be more at risk for a heat stroke having had one previously for a few reasons. One, they might have long-term or permanent complications like I described earlier because they were not treated properly and they might have thermoregulatory issues. They might heat up faster now than they did before. Also, there could be a situation that someone is more at risk for a heat stroke because there might be a genetic reason. Um, there might be, for instance, the, their horrible cardiovascular fitness or their lack of heat acclimatization. Those things might still be present when they go back out. So it might not be the heat stroke. It could be in some situations, the heat stroke put them at risk for another heat stroke, but it might be the circumstances that were present before are still present again. If it's that second circumstance situation, you can maybe correct the circumstances. You get yourself fitter. You get yourself heat acclimatized. You have a smart coach who doesn't do ridiculous things at a practice. And now we could be safer when we go back out there. Okay. You mentioned a couple of times, like athletes, Olympians, people come and work with you in preparation for an event or a course. How do people do that? Like say I'm, I'm working with a guy who's going to go walk around with a backpack in the heat for a while. Can he just show up at UConn? And so first they'd email us and I have, um, Two of my um, division directors at KSI, Dr. Stearns, does all the testing for people who've had previous problems in the heat. And then Dr. Huggins runs the division for athletes and warfighters and laborers who just want to do better in the heat, right? They want to have information. So depending on the person, if they emailed me, I would funnel them to the right person. And then we would decide on which, we have a lot of different kinds of testing we do here. We would decide, we would program the testing for the particular needs of that individual. Um, there is a cost, obviously, associated with this as well. Um, and then after we decide what testing would take place, we would let them know what that cost would be, and then they could make that decision. For people who've had previous problems in the heat, um, often their medical insurance will cover the testing we do here because their physician is sending them to us for parts of their recovery. What's the average range in cost for someone to work with you at KSI? 
most basic things would probably be around $1,500 up to maybe $5,000 for more advanced stuff. Or we've had some people live here for a couple of weeks at a time to do all their heat acclimatization sessions with us. And then, you know, their sponsors, their sponsored athletes, so their sponsors are often paying for that for them as well. Okay. So where can someone learn more about KSI if they want to find out about working with you or learn from the resources you have? So two places I'd recommend. One is just our website, ksi.ucon.edu. UConn is U-C-O-N-N, um, standing for University of Connecticut because we're housed at UConn. So ksi.ucon.edu. And then I would just reach out to me with an email if you, for instance, ever want to come here for testing um, or need that additional information. It's douglas.casa, C-A-S-A at UConn, U-C-O-N-N.edu. Great. Thanks for your time, Doug. This was really good. All right. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for the awesome questions and the opportunity. That's all for today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and leave us a review. It really makes a difference and helps others discover our podcast. And if you think someone you know might enjoy this episode, please share it with them. You can learn more about the Corey Stringer Institute and Dr. Koss's work at ksi.ucon.edu. And you can reach Dr. Casa by email at douglas.casa at yukon.edu. To learn more about training for special operations or elite tactical fields, please visit our website, buildingtheelite.com. There you can find many free resources for anyone interested in doing hard things well and training options for a wide range of careers, from special operations prep to civilians looking to become more fit, capable, and resilient. On our site, you can find free training guides that help you understand the preparation process for various soft selection courses. We have a profile tool that will analyze your individual performance data, compare it to the standards needed to succeed in your chosen selection course, and highlight your personal limiting factors and what you should prioritize in your training. We also have training programs that address the full spectrum of performance development, from physical to mental, and include daily mental skills practices to help train the mental and emotional skills necessary to excel in challenging careers.